I got a few things to cover right at the beginning here, so I hope you'll beg my indulgence, as you often do. Thank you very much for that. It probably says something about my mindset that I feel the need to begin with defending myself, because I am not simply recovering the Star Trek movies, yes, all of them, by the way, because I want to. I, I do want to, I don't want to mis mistake you or misjudge you on that, but I wouldn't actually do a rumination solely because I want to at this point in time. There are simply too few hours in the day to spend any time on anything other than games or, or shows or movies or whatever that are requested by viewers and patrons. So, this was actually requested by several patrons, which is why I've given the, the idea serious credence. It's also worth noting that I was actually prepared to do this series, a look at all the Star Trek movies, quite some time ago. Several years ago, in fact. But I ended up shelving that idea because of some rather derogatory comments by some of my viewers at the time, which there's no need to really drug up specifics. I'm sure some of you have heard this story, but basically got down to the point where I was called a hack and a uh, pathetic aping of sci-fi debris. And I don't mind uh, name-dropping him because I actually have a lot of respect for sci-fi debris, and indeed, I like his show quite a bit. In fact, I recommend you go watch it. And feel free. You know, he's he's got a completely different style to what I do. He does deconstructions, but he's more intended to entertain and review, whereas I try to focus more on analysis and uh, and and thought-provoking discussion. And of course, he's funny, and I'm not. So there's that. But that really hit hard at the time, and I just shelved this. And honestly, I shelved it right up until it was requested in the last batch of requests uh, by my patrons specifically. And I was like, all right, you know what? Sure. I'll go ahead and, and rethink giving a look at these movies. I am not going to commit to this, but I might be increasing my schedule for these movies. We'll see. It depends. I See, the thing is, originally I was planning on going ahead and doing two of these movie ruminations per week while I'm pushing through the series for, for two big reasons. One, there's a lot of Star Trek movies you know, in the double digits. And number two, because movies take significantly less time to do than most games to go through. For example, Kingdoms of Mavalor took me months to finally play through and analyze and do that video on it. That being said, though, my overall free time is not that great right now. Uh, I shouldn't say free time. My overall work time is not that great right now. And it, admittedly, going through these movies with the colossal amount of backstory and history and reading into the behind-the-scenes stuff that I do and, and you know the general research that I do, it, it, put it to you this way. Doing the work for this video, not counting recording right now, obviously, because I'm doing that right now, so I don't know how long this will take, actually took me longer than it took me to do the video on Brothers A Tale of Two Sons, which is a game. So, think of that as you will. But now that I'm not defending myself and have caused half of you to leave and go watch a much better show, Sci-Fi Debris, couple of things I want to note. I'm not, I'm not going to talking, be talking about the behind-the-scenes stuff too much with this film in particular. And the biggest reason why is this film was a mess. Before you start yelling at me, let me make this clear. What I mean is, the production of this film was a mess. And it was. And there's a lot of contradictory reports, a lot of finger-pointing, and a lot of name-calling. In general, it was his fault, no, it was his fault, no culpability, no responsibility. A lot of garbage, basically. Like I said, it was a mess. And I've decided to basically not comment on that overall, except to emphasize one thing that I do think is very important to keep in mind. It was a mess. And when you have a behind-the-scenes situation that is a complete just cluster like that, it's going to affect the movie. And I think it did, and I think it shows, and I'll talk about that in, in certain ways as we go throughout this video. But the biggest problem, 
and again, I want to stress, I mean no disrespect to anyone involved, is, and this is my opinion on the matter, is the fact that Roddenberry and Paramount, the, the Paramount studio execs, were basically squabbling over Star Trek at this period of time. Pretty badly, actually. And there's no real denying that the people who suffered the most were the people in the middle. The cast, the crew, the fans. Star Trek The Motion Picture is one of the more clear-cut examples of that infighting. And... Again, I don't want to cover details, but I do want to cover one thing really quick here. I've often called this movie by a derogatory term, and I admit it is a derogatory term. I call it the slow motion picture. Star Trek, the slow motion picture. Uh, in actual fact, it's so ingrained in me to call it that that I haven't actually called it anything else other than ST1, uh, the acronym, obviously, for quite some time, in, in, the, in the range of years at this point. That being said, before again you all torch me, I do want to say I did actually enjoy this movie more than I thought I would upon revisiting it. And at the same time, I also was much more bored with the rest of this movie when I was rewatching it. Again, I'll talk about that more in a bit, but I want to really talk about that whole slow motion thing here, right at the beginning. For those of you who don't know, Star Trek has had a tumultuous history, uh, as and many shows have, uh, behind the scenes. And almost immediately, in fact, arguably the very day that Star Trek went off the air after season three, after a non-season ending, they, they were already in works to try and continue Star Trek. And a lot of people were tossing around a lot of ideas. The idea of a movie was pushed out there, but was almost immediately rejected. And the reason why is very obvious. This is something I want to get across, okay? You can read all, all about the, the creation of this in Phase 2. I'm not going to be covering that in great detail. I want to emphasize one thing that I feel most other people who talk about this movie and the Star Trek franchise in general tend to miss. When Star Trek The Motion Picture was made, making films in general was more difficult, costly, and generally risky than it is nowadays in basically every way. I could actually do a whole uh, essay. I know I say this a lot. On the idea of the Hollywood machine, uh, it's it's kind of weird to explain, but basically, think of it like here's the Hollywood machine, right? And and money flows in and out of it constantly, but almost all of that money always recycles right back into it. So the Hollywood machine has so much infrastructure built up because when there is a demand, people will rise to meet that demand and create new jobs, create new industries in order to support it. There is a colossal amount of infrastructure in terms of people, in terms of expertise, in terms of equipment, in terms of knowledge, in terms of backing, in terms of politics that exists in the filmmaking industry now that didn't in the 70s, and the 60s for that matter. And so much of that is because of Star Wars. Go ahead, make fun, it's okay. I know it's not just because of Star Wars, but there's absolutely no denying that Star Wars changed the face of the film industry, proved that certain types of films could be wildly successful while still being critically acclaimed, really pushed the envelope as far as science fiction being a thing, and a lot of other films came out that were trying to, to be blunt, ape Star Wars. And yes, this is one of them. I don't want to cover exactly why just yet, because we're still catching up to that. But the point is, nowadays, it's hard, it's hard to have that perspective. Imagine trying to make a movie nowadays. It's much, much easier. I mean, you might have some financial issues or difficulties doing it, but there's a reason movies come out left and right, and so many of them are considered popcorn movies, because those studios, due to the way they write off expenses and keep track of their budgetary accounting and the whole concept of, not, of, of floating... Uh, dividends and whatnot, 
basically they're going to be turning out okay unless something is a colossal flop, which, let's be honest, hasn't happened in a while. Even Batman and Robin still made money back. Think about that for a moment. So, but back in the 70s, so this is this different perspective. Back in the 70s, making a movie at all was a risky venture. Making a science fiction movie, those were the rare exceptions. Now, yes, science fiction movies did exist before Star Wars. But if you really look at the list, there are not many of them. And most of them didn't really succeed at the time. A lot of those have since become classics, and with good reason, in my opinion. I do think 2001 Space Odyssey is a genuinely great film. I do think Logan's Run is a genuinely terrible film with great ideas behind it. I know, kind of a bipolar thing there, but it's, it's my opinion. And, and there are other examples of that, that I could go into, which I'm not going to. But the point is, motion picture, the slow motion picture, I, I had to catch myself through a moment. The reason they rejected the idea of a movie immediately was because, ah, yeah, right, we can't make a Star Trek movie. And, the, and it, it wasn't that nobody wanted to. In fact, just about everyone involved, including Ron Berry himself, were fully on board with the idea of a Star Trek fully motion picture. They were like, yes, this will be great. But the backing wasn't there. The reality of it was, we can't do this. Ironic when you consider the times and, and the changes since then. So instead, they started looking at other venues. Some of you may not even know this, because I find myself to this day finding people who are not aware of this fact, but they actually made an animated series uh, of, of the original series. Star Trek, the animated series, is what it's almost always referred to as, or ST-TAS, the animated series. I'm not going to comment on the quality of that show, or indeed about that show at all. Suffice to say, however, that from a financial perspective, it was a bit of a flop, and that's why it basically never went anywhere. And it's also one of the reasons why it's almost universally considered non-canon, and most people just kind of ignore it exists, which is also why some people don't even know it exists. So they were banding about other ideas, and a lot of things were pushed in different directions, and it started getting really frustrating for several people involved, notably Roddenberry himself. Let me make one thing absolutely clear. Gene Roddenberry was a visionary guy who had great ideas. He was also kind of a jerk. He was. I'm sorry. There is so many, so much evidence and proof to show that the man was a bit of a jerk, especially at certain points in his history. And he wasn't that great of a writer, either. If you're paying attention, I've said these exact same things before about another film series I've already looked at with regards to George Lucas. Kind of a jerk. Great ideas. Bad writer. Bad director, too, I might add, in both cases. The similarities between the two men actually amuse me a great deal. Uh, when you get down to it. But my point is, in my personal opinion, feel free to flame me alive for this, because I know a lot of Trek fans get really vitriolic about things like this, but in my opinion, Roddenberry's the kind of guy who should come up with an idea and turn it over to the, the experienced people he has working for him and say, make this, an, make this a reality. The problem was Roddenberry had this experience when he was making the original series, and that was, and, and, and his, a lot of his writings, and just about everything uh, with regards to his interviews and the people who talked about him, confirm this. From his perspective, making the original series felt like pulling teeth, because he was constantly trying to make things happen in a certain way, and everyone was fighting him, mostly the executives, mostly the studio. You know, the, the network, actually. I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say studio. But the network was just fighting him constantly, pushing and kicking and shoving. And, and he's just, ah, oh, the original series was crap. It should have been amazing, and it wasn't. I'll be talking more about how this affects how Star Trek became and eventually died uh, when we get to the 10th movie, or no. Yeah, well, anyways, when we get to Nemesis on this list and when we get to uh, The Next Generation in my uh, episodic reviews. 
ruminations. Suffice it to say, however, that was Roddenberry's perspective. Now, I'm not going to say that's right or wrong. What it was was his perspective. He had spent so much time fighting to make his Star Trek that when it came time to work on Phase 2, he was really adamant about not budging on certain issues. And it is likely, although... Again, this is speculation that his refusal to budge on Phase 2 is one of the contributing reasons why Phase 2 never actually happened. Fun fact as an anecdote here. One of the things I've heard several Star Trek fans say as a, as a thing that might happen in the future and they would actually support is the Phase 2 show. In other words, after the five-year mission, the continuation of the, the original cast series in an episodic format with the new cast from the Abrams films. Not sure what I think about that, but it would be an interesting way to get Star Trek in television again. And let's be honest with ourselves, I really want Star Trek back in television. At least as a good show. I mean, for God's sakes, if it's a bad show, then that's even worse, but I digress. So, after all of this, a funny couple of incidences happened. And one of them is Star Wars. Now, Star Wars, they were already leaning towards making Star Trek this the motion picture when Star Wars was finally released and exploded in popularity in ways no one had actually predicted. But there is absolutely no denying the fact that Star Wars pushed them the rest of the way because there was... Again, there's so much contradictory information. There's so much conflicting information. Um, suffice it to say that based on certain reports, they were already working on the motion... I mean, we know what they were working on the motion picture before Star Wars came out. That's, that's pretty much fact. What we don't know is... If the statement I'm about to say is true, which is if they were going to pull the plug on it, which, in my opinion, looked very likely based on everything that was happening. God, this poor movie had so many production issues, it's ridiculous. But then Star Wars succeeded. Star Wars, the original, A New Hope, changed the filming landscape in a similar way that so many other films would do before and since then. Uh, some would argue that X-Men, the first one, actually also changed the film landscape. Very many people would further argue that Iron Man, the first one, completely changed the film landscape, and so forth and so on. There's been several different iterations of this over, over, over history. But Star Wars changed the landscape, and it, it is arguably one of the main reasons why the early and mid-80s consisted of so many really good, I might add, science fiction movies, where before it was kind of the uh, odd rarity. But I am digressing again. Point is, Star Wars exploded in popularity. I hope you're catching the irony that it is very likely that the fact that Star Wars was so successful is why we still have Star Trek today. Because if the motion picture had not been made and then succeeded as well as it had, it is very likely we never would have actually gotten Star Trek. Like, again. And not, and the, the most people would have gotten is probably the kind of thing of the, that happened with Battlestar Galactica, but even that is a complete roll of the dice because there are so many old IPs that can be re-envisioned like Battlestar Galactica was. The odds of them picking Star Trek are, again, just a roll of the dice. So, irony, as they say. But I'm getting ahead of myself. When they made the slow motion picture, they changed producers and directors and writers multiple times. They changed the entire graphics department, the entire special effects team. I, I don't even know what to say about that. Can you even imagine having already worked on a team and then, no, okay, ejecting the whole thing and making brand new graphics working around the clock over budget? Oh, by the way, that's another thing that really was going against this film. This film was colossally over budget. 
that blame definitely does not fall solely on Roddenberry's shoulders. He does share some of it, without question. A lot of film delays, a lot of script delays were uh, directly as a result of Roddenberry's actions, and delays mean more money because you're paying the people longer in order to produce the film. I mean, this is pretty uh, linear here. But he is by no means the only person. Everyone involved in this, the the executive producers, the people in charge uh, at Paramount, uh, Michael Eisner was actually involved with this film. Lots and lots of people just screwed up everywhere, and it was mismanaged and misappropriated. And there's one thing I personally speculate on. You may feel free to disagree with me on this, because this is, of course, pure speculation. But after Star Wars, uh, they started re-envisioning the movie and changed a few things behind the scenes, and again, completely redid the graphics department. And they said, Star Wars is successful, let's go do that. And so they tried to ape it. The problem is they did nothing that Star Wars had actually done to be successful. They simply tried to make a big-budget science fiction, semi-action, semi-character piece. And it kind of shows. But all of this is a build-up to the biggest reason why I feel slow-motion picture is called that. It's actually two reasons, not four. So, two reasons here, okay? Number one, it's a long television episode. Now, I don't want to sound uh, like... Disingenuous. I don't want to get you across the idea that, oh, it's making movies easy, right? No, of course it isn't. But that's the point. I know and acknowledge that making a movie is actually a very difficult and trying thing to do, especially in the freaking 70s. So actually making a script for a movie work is a completely different animal from making a television script work. So all the script writers they brought in, well, let's just say that the mishmash and, and hashing around of it, this, this movie really does feel like an extra long episode. And that brings me to my second problem, the effects. Now, the effects of this movie are actually pretty impressive, all things considered. I found myself genuinely surprised at how good they've held up after, you know, almost... uh, I think we're actually over the 30... No, no, we're almost at the 30-year mark at this point, I think. I can't do math. Oh, no, we are, in fact, over the 30-year mark. Wow. Anyways, I feel old. (laughs) Um... The graphics have aged surprisingly well, and it's obvious a lot of care and effort were put into them. But... The movie will literally stop dead at certain points to just sit back and watch the graphics. Because they spent so much money on them that they refused to edit them down, and also there were some issues with them already being behind budget and behind schedule, or excuse me, over budget and behind schedule. So they didn't do nearly as much editing as they otherwise would have, not as much work in post, in other words. And that led to basically huge chunks of time. I'm talking about in the minutes range. Now I know what you're thinking. Two minutes isn't that long. I want you to sit there, if you care to, pause this video, count out two minutes of nothing happening in the middle of a film. Just a song playing and some graphics playing for two minutes. And then, go ahead, come back, and then tell me again that two minutes isn't a long time. And then do that over and over and over and over and over, throughout like two-thirds of the film. Later on, it gets better, because the, the, the action starts to ramp up and things start to happen relatively quickly. But for, a lo- for the entire first half of the film, I actually had huge stretches of time where I was just... For the record, I refused to fast-forward through this. I wanted to enjoy... I wanted to experience the movie as purely, quote-unquote, as possible, as if I was watching it in the theaters again. And so... Yeah. Now... I want to stress one other thing, too. 
<laughs> I shouldn't have to say this to any of my actual viewers, but I'm not the kind of guy who really goes for pretty lights and, and that kind of thing and, and insists on everything being an action romp or anything like that. I, I don't really think I need to defend myself on that point, but I do want to defend myself on one point. I'm a huge advocate of show, don't tell. And one thing I will say about the graphics of this movie in all those big, long scenes is they do show, not tell. They do get across whatever the idea is that they're trying to get across pretty distinctly and clearly. The problem is then they keep doing it. And doing it. And doing it. And then two minutes pass. I'm not going to sit here and wait for two minutes. I'm not going to make you go through that. But then, you know, a huge period of time passes, relatively speaking, and they're still making that exact same point. Nothing's changed. Nothing's added. That's the flaw, I feel. For the record, if you want to watch this film and you haven't, there's a director's cutout that chops that down considerably to the point where it is much more manageable. But to really get across my point here, I, I wish I'd actually written down times. I, I actually made a point not to. I decided not to. The very beginning of the film, and this was true in the theaters as well, by the way, is just a song playing against a moving star field. That's it. No text, no story, no plot, no narration. Music, Starfield, over a minute. I know it was. It, it was quite some time. Then the Paramount logo starts. Then they actually get to the intro to the movie, which then had credits and Starfield and music. That's very indicative of the overall approach of the slow motion picture. Before anyone asks, though, yes, I do still net positive this movie, in my opinion. It is still enjoyable. Which brings me to the next thing I wanted to cover. Now that we've discovered the, uh, the behind-the-scenes on the slow-motion picture, let's talk about the odds and evens rule. On the off chance that you're watching this video and you're not really a Star Trek fan, a Trekker, or a Trekkie, and yes, there is a distinction, you might not know about the odds-evens rule. A lot of people do. It, it's one of those things that's considered common amongst the people who are not actually Trek fans but just are aware of it. So, but regardless, the overall rule is the odd number of movies suck and the even number of movies are good. To be completely blunt, I don't fully agree with this, and for a couple of reasons, one of which I'll be covering much later in this series, but one I'm just going to talk about right now. As I just said, I liked Star Trek 1. I liked Star Trek 3. I liked Star Trek 7, and I liked Star Trek 9. I can find enjoyment in Star Trek 5, despite the fact that it's ludicrously stupid and also not a Star Trek film, and so forth. So the point here is that I don't really think that saying that is, is really getting across the point, which shouldn't surprise anybody who follows me, because I don't like those kind of summarizations anyways. That leads too clearly to bullet point syndrome. When, the, when your only bullet point for a movie is sucks, that's not really getting across any of the nuance, uh, detail, subtlety, duration, or otherwise anything else that could be derivative of that movie. It's just sucks. That's why I don't really agree with that. However, I would be remiss if I did not also mention that, in my opinion, the rule is kind of valid if you take it as a more generic term rather than a literal definition. In other words, 1, 3, 5, 7, etc. are worse than 2, 4, 6, and 8. That is, of course, my opinion, though. And that does not make my opinion any more or less valid than yours. And you know what I would love to hear? Genuinely. Anyone out there, when I'm talking about any of the odd-numbered movies, if you really like those odd-numbered movies, it would really bless me to hear from you and say, you know, why? Why you love this movie? Say, I really like Star Trek, the motion picture, and here's why. Dot, dot, dot. I'd love that. I would absolutely love that. So if anybody out there who genuinely feels that way, please feel free to share that. I'd like to hear that. <sighs> Let's start talking about the movie proper, right? 
Now, one other thing before we get into the movie proper <laughs> is some more behind-the-scenes stuff. A little bit, just a little tidbit. I just want to share this. This is the first time we had Klingon and Vulcan as languages in the, in the franchise as a whole. James Doohan is pretty universally the guy who was responsible for the fact that we have Klingon and the way the Klingon language eventually came. Now, when Star Trek uh, 2 and 3 came along, they actually did bring on a uh, dialect linguist, I believe was the term, for, for the gentleman... Uh, who actually made it into a real language, made Klingon into a real language. And eventually Star Trek would make that kind of a habit, making alien languages actual languages, so they could actually do that on the show. Which, by the way, I think was a great move. But James Doohan, by the way, that's Scotty, if you forgot, is the gentleman who sat down and said, all right, because he knew actually a great deal about languages in real life. And so he sat down and, and hashed out some very basic uh, adjectives, words, and some sentences for the Klingons to speak in this movie. So if you're ever wondering why this uh, is how the Klingons sound, it's thanks to James Doohan. Just another thing we owe that man for. He was an awesome guy, all things considered. Um... By the way, another just anecdote. It was actually based off of Mongolian. I just felt like sharing that. One more anecdote. I swear, it's the last one. Mark Leonard plays the Klingon ca uh, commander at the beginning of this movie. Now, if you don't know who that is, he plays Sarek. Arguably the best gentleman to ever actually play a Vulcan in history. Uh, only competed with that, in my personal opinion, by Tim Russ. But let's get to the movie proper. Finally, finally. Okay, movie proper. This is a cloud of immense size, which I'll talk about in just a moment. And there's probably something in it, but we can't tell because our scans can't penetrate it because of the immense amount of energy that it's putting out. And the Klingons are not stupid, or at least they shouldn't be. And so they know all this, okay? Why are they shooting at it with torpedoes? Let me stress again that this cloud is gargantuanly huge. And they're shooting it with torpedoes. Now, you're probably like, well... Arshin Guy, the lower runner, why don't you explain to me how gigantically huge it is? I don't have words in the English language that can truly express the expanse of how big this cloud is, but, but let me put it to you this way in actual numbers. The diameter of this cloud is either 2 or 82 AUs. Why the variance? Because the production of this movie was a mess, and a lot of people were disagreeing on how and what it should be. In the original theatrical cut, it was 82 AUs. In the uh, more recent things, it was closer to 2. They actually cut out the 80 and made it just 2. The director's cut, for example, chops it down. They also mention it later as being having 2 AUs. There's a lot of inconsistencies in this movie, and it's all because of that mess problem I mentioned earlier. However, even if we assume the best-case scenario, and it is merely 2 AUs in diameter, um, an AU is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So 2 AU is the orbit of the Earth around the Sun. A torpedo could fit on my bed. Why are the Klingons shooting torpedoes at this thing? Now, I mean, torpedoes are actually wildly dangerous and very, very deadly devices. Don't mistake me, but I mean... What are you trying to do? It would, I, I can't even have an equivalent to that. I'd say it's like a flea pecking at you, but you might at least notice a flea. This is a so much different scale than that. This is like one of, your, uh, one of the little flecks of dust on your skin happens to be tickling you with a microbe. Wow. I only want to mention this in regards to the Klingons in general. Uh, first of all, this is the first time we've ever seen the Klingons with the new makeup job. 
behind-the-scenes look, it was always intended that they looked like that. They just didn't have the money to actually do prosthetics for the, for, for the Klingons on the original series, so they just made them look greasy. You know, they, they kind of made them made their skin look, kind of look different, and their hair a little bit wilder. That was it. So then they'd introduce Klingons here, and per Roddenberry's request, they basically just said, screw you know, continuity, screw trying to keep it, and just show them with the ridges, because that's how they're supposed to look, right? And that would be finalized in Star Trek Three, uh, I believe, is when we really get to see Klingons, you know, as they are supposed to look henceforth, and would look until the end of the franchise. Until Abrams came along, of course. Um, I only mention this, though, because... It's another thing that this movie does actually surprisingly well, and it's a definite positive in its point. Setting building. Star Trek as a setting, I know this sounds weird, because Star Trek is one of the most expansive settings in fiction. Not the most. I mean, there's, there's more expansive. But it's up there. But when you look back from this perspective, in the 70s, all we had was the original series, which was very inconsistent with itself, because, well, let's just say it was deliberate, and I'll cover that much later when I start doing the TNG stuff because it's going to be relevant there. But it was very inconsistent with itself. And then we had the animated series, which was basically written off by all the creators and the fans, as far as continuity goes. So what actually constituted the the world, the setting of Star Trek, was as fluid as could be. Motion pictures sat down and started laying down some ground lines, some base guidelines that other films and, and shows would then build upon. So many of the things that actually started uh, Star Trek staples of the setting all started here in this movie. So definite props to the world building that this movie actually does. Uh, it, it, Starfleet, the Vulcans, and Klingons are the three big points which are fleshed out in this one, uh, even if only a little bit. We, like I said, it's at least laying the ground lines, which had never really been done before. <sighs> I have a note here just called movie inconsistencies. Okay, there's no getting around this. This script actually contradicts itself multiple times. And it's because it was a mess behind the scenes. I'm just, I'm just going to keep saying that. I'm sorry, because it's true. There was a lot of issues. But let's get to something else that Star Trek fans have debated for years since then, believe it or not. V'ger, this is right up there with the whale probe. V'ger is this stupidly, incredibly powerful thing that comes by and just kind of breezes by everyone and is super powerful and machine life, blah, 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 blah. What the hey, you know? I mean, where did this come from? Who who found it? All that fun stuff. Well, fun little factoid. A very popular theory to the point of the fact that it's become rumor, such that it has then evolved from rumor to the point where some people put this as fact, is the fact that V'ger was actually found by the Borg. All of this started because Roddenberry made a very offhanded comment around TNG's run that he supposed it might be possible that based on the way V'ger uh, evolved and whatnot, that V'ger had actually landed on the Borg home planet and therefore had been ad evolved and adapted by them to become the, the super monstrosity that we see in the movie. That's kind of how things start in Star Trek. One person makes an offhanded comment and it just blossoms from there. But I want to point this out to really nail this back down. Roddenberry made an offhand comment and in a non-canon book, at least as far as the, the, the rest of Star Trek is concerned, uh, it was confirmed that uh, the Borg, the Borg were the ones. It was uh, the book uh, Return. It was one of the Shatner books, which I actually recommend, by the way. They're a little Mary Sue-ish when it comes to Shatner, but they're actually pretty good overall books, so I, I do actually still recommend them. In many ways, I feel like they can continue the series better than the movies did, to be completely blunt. But I'll talk about that more when we get to Star Trek Generations. Moving on. The interesting thing here to think about, though, is the Borg interacting with V'ger. Now, here's the weird catch. 
Vidra is described as total logic, without any emotion at all, which, as we know, is something that we haven't really encountered otherwise in Star Trek, with, with a few exceptions. Now, you might be seeing, well, Data does have an emotion. Yes, but Data does have ethics. Data has more than mere logic to guide him. Most of the things we've encountered have more than just logic to guide them. In fact, the Vulcans themselves, it ignore, ignoring the fact that they do actually have very strong emotions, and that's a huge part of their species' uh, cultural identity, also still have a concept of ethics and morality to guide them, even after they've undergone the uh, Kolinar to purge them of their emotions and whatnot. Even assuming they succeed at that, which most Vulcans don't, it's worth noting. So, V'ger, total logic and nothing else the most fundamental basic form of programming, to put it into such terms, that allows it to have sentience and consciousness. The funny thing is, when you think about it, in some contexts, the Borg could be considered to be the same thing. The Borg are very logical. And yet, I, and, and I've talked about the Borg extensively in my Voyager videos, and I will continue to do so in the future, because they keep coming up. Um, the way the Borg function, though, is, uh, is efficiency, function, and logic, right? They have no concern for ethics, morality, individual will, emotions, or anything like that, with the exception of the Queen. And so, the Borg, as a whole, could actually be seen to be the things that encountered V'ger. The only question I have is... Well, okay, the Borg we know are definitely the kind of creatures that... Uh, they show a definite interest in the merger of flesh and steel, right? The machine and the organic. Uh, very Reaper-esque, if you prefer. Such a perspective to it. And that's always been something of their modus operandi. They very much want to achieve their own form of perfection by finding the balance point between the two, which ironically makes them smarter than the Star Child, although that's not hard to do, but I digress. So... I find myself wondering two things. First of all, why would a species like that give V'ger, a full machine, nothing but machine parts, right? Well, second interesting thought to think about. This is skipping way ahead in my notes, so forgive me. At the end of this movie, spoiler alert, um, V'ger merges with a human, Decker, Captain Decker, and... As a result, they go up in smoke and all disappear, and, and we're left with implications and thoughts. And I have my own theories on that. The, the, the movie tries to basically put it off as if they have just created a new form of life, like they have ascended to a higher plane. I actually find it a little bit more likely that the satisfaction of self... This is going to sound uh, buzzwordy, so forgive me, but self-actualized existence. In other words, you live because you have decided what living is, and therefore you are self-determinant to live. You know, nothing external is pushing you. So it has reached that point of zen, for lack of a better term, with itself, that it has simply ceased to be. All that energy dissipating into, into nothing and, and reaching that form of conclusion. Not death in the strictest sense, because death is a horrible thing, but rather a conclusion, a successful finishing of the story, if that makes any sense the way I'm describing it. That's always been my take on it. However, however... Wouldn't it be fascinating if the reason the Borg discovered that the best possible method towards progression towards perfection 
was the merger of flesh and machine, the ideal of organic life and logical machine life combining into a greater whole, which they gained because the of the information V'ger sent to them, either in its final moments or after its dispersal or whatever, after it realized this simple truth by merging with Decker. Wouldn't it be fascinating if the Borg were originally an all-machine race that then began the process of assimilation thanks to this? I like that so much, I'm almost tempted to replace my own canon reason for the origins of the Borg with that one. But, moving on. So, it's about this point in the movie that uh, I realized that I needed to make an extra note to myself. I tend to be a little balancing effect when it comes to ruminations, and I admit this uh, freely. If you don't know what I mean, if I'm looking at a game or book or movie that a lot of people are very negative towards, I will almost always tend to be more positive towards it. I will actually, like, internally. Internally, I will be like, I want to be more positive towards this. Um... Admittedly, the the same the other doesn't the, the other doesn't hold true. Like if everyone's positive towards a thing, I don't you know. Okay, we'll we'll keep being positive, yeah, because I like positivity. So I I have that tendency, but I realized I was giving this movie a little bit more slack than I intended to, because of that very thing. Because a lot of people are fairly negative towards this movie, and I wanted to be more positive towards it. But I realized doing so was basically being disingenuous. I don't want to lie to you guys. I don't want to exaggerate to you guys. I do enjoy this movie. Having watched it now, I fully enjoyed this movie. I really did. And that's great, you know? I just need to rein that in and not be over-positive. And the exact thing that made me think about this was... I just got into the scene where Nimoy was there. And I was thinking, well, based on this and based on that and based on the way the scenes are cut, you know, we've actually got a genuine threat showing here. Maybe there's some real tension here. You know, maybe... And, and I, I found myself thinking lines along the lines of, maybe under the right circumstances I could feel tension here, or maybe if things were different, or maybe if it was cut differently or whatever, maybe I could see this thing as being a decent buildup. But again, that is me trying to balance it out artificially. The truth is, if I could be blunt, there's like no tension in this entire film for me. And this is a film which faces the, the near destruction of Earth. Not for the first or last time, I might add, in Star Trek. And also the deaths of many different individuals, namely the three Klingon uh, Katingas that are, are at the beginning of the ship, the death of everyone that was on the space station, the God knows what kind of damage was done to Earth when when V'ger was taking pot shots at it, you know, that kind of a thing. So despite all the, the on-paper things that should be very tense and suspenseful, at no point in time did I feel any of that throughout the whole movie. But... Again, in the interest of being totally honest, I do like how the mystery is laid out for the first half of the film. Um, ignoring the giant pauses for the effects that I mentioned earlier, the buildup is not... There's no buildup, I guess, basically. But there is that sort of, what's going on? Like, you want to find out what's, going, what's happening. You want to get to the next step. Now, obviously, I've kind of spoiled the hell out of everything. But on the off chance that you actually have not seen this movie... Uh, Go watch it. It, it. Like I said, it's a good movie. It's not the greatest one ever, but it's definitely decent and enjoyable. And I recommend you go watch it. I'll wait a, a few seconds. Okay, that's long enough. I'll do my Sulu impression. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, no offense to Sulu whatsoever, by the way. Don't, don't mistake that. Um, the whole twist at the end is... There's no real build-up to it that I felt like was actually significant. Instead, there's a really strange sense of... 
I hate myself for saying this, like proper mystery construction. They don't... It's, it's so weird because the script is like contradicting itself as it goes through in terms of its tone and approach. At some points, the script basically just presents things and then lets you move on. You know, like let that, lets it sit in the back of your mind to go, well, that seems off. That's not how that should be. You know, that kind of a thing. Like a proper mystery should. So there's a lot of moments where it's like Vidra is obviously acting strangely or incorrectly. Maybe we can figure out why. And then there's other moments where they spend like three minutes in character talking in the most obvious terms about things, like like shoving it into your face. This is wrong! Which is not proper mystery construction for anybody who's curious. Weird situation. Um, let's, let's talk about Leonard Nimoy really quick. Uh, first of all... Um, Nimoy was in a weird place in his real life at this point in time. He was having some issues with regards to Star Trek and some resentment problems, all of which is understandable, by the way. I want to stress that. I don't mean to presume as to why those problems went away, but there is no denying that they went away. Nimoy originally only agreed, only agreed, to go ahead and do motion picture because of some legal disputes that was going on at the time. Otherwise, he, he was actually wanting to refuse to do it. And when he did it, he had issues with it. And so then he, he and then he would basically had to be dragged into Star Trek Two. And I'll talk about that in Star Trek Two. But there's no denying the fact that Nimoy really didn't want to do this movie. And it kind in my opinion, he channeled all of his disdain and loathing for the role into the first half or so of the movie. I'll talk about how that unfolds later on. But the way he is acting in his first few scenes. I get that they were trying to show that he was, you know, an incomplete, that he was unformed, that he had logic, but not what he was actually missing. You know, that whole thing. I get that. I really do. But the way the actor portrays it, it's pretty clear there was real loathing underneath the skin there. And it just made the whole series of scenes uncomfortable. And I think that's why I don't like them all that much. Especially given how hard uh, everyone else was trying to act. You know, oh my God, it's you're back. And he's just cold-shouldering. A little too close to home there, I think. Uniforms. I have a threat. I have a note here just called uniforms. Okay, I know that I'm actually really picky when it comes to uniforms, but uh, I'd just like to say that the uniforms in Star Trek 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 are a huge improvement over the ones in this movie, which are only in this movie, by the way. The original series uniforms, they're there, and then we've got the, the movie uniforms, which is most often referred to as the Wrath of Khan ones, and then we've got uh, the various uniforms of the TNG era, of which there's five, I think, because they changed them quite a bit. But the only uniform that is ever only shown in one work is the one in this one, and I'd just like to say, Bleh. Maybe it's just the fact that they're all kind of beige and, and got this pastel look. A very 70s thing, I might add. Maybe it's the fact that they look more like jumpsuits rather than uniforms. But I actually have something to talk about with that, believe it or not. I mean, obviously I dislike them. But let's leave that dislike aside for a moment and talk about something else. Roddenberry always insisted, to the point of being aggravating about it in some cases, that Starfleet was not a military. He was adamant about that fact. Starfleet was not a military organization. Whether you think that is true or not is, of course, your own uh, perspective and opinion based on all the works throughout Star Trek and whatever you consider can and whatever you consider valid. I'm not going to pass judgment on you if you think that Starfleet is a military or is not. 
for me, saying Starfleet is not military, when I first heard that uh, from Roddenberry himself, not in person, but in a thing he was doing in an interview, uh, that was akin to saying that water is not wet, because it was so obvious to me, based on the way Starfleet functioned with military craft and weapons and a, a command rank structure and uh, protocols and all that fun stuff that it was very clearly a military organization such that I can't even consider you seeing it anything else. That's my opinion and I ask you to respect it as I respect yours. But I mention this here because there's a there's some uh, information that may support, again, this is a speculation, because again, we know so little about the making of this film, it's kind of a tragedy, really, that the reason the uniforms do not look like uniforms, but rather look like uh, kind of casual spacesuits, is because of that exact idea and desire, to make it look like they were not uniforms, that they were not part of a military, and to push that kind of directive. Another fact that supports that is the fact that as a result of this movie, as a direct consequence of this movie and its critical and financial failures, Roddenberry was, to use the Hollywood term, kicked upstairs, which for those of you who don't know, means you're promoted to the point where you can't actually affect anything. And so Roddenberry was pushed upstairs in, in terms of position, so he had no real authority to actually do stuff, and with Roddenberry out of the way, we got Star Trek II. New uniforms, very military structure, and... All that fun stuff. Food for thought. I'm going to save this point for last, I think. Um, there's a lot of little touches in the script that are actually pretty good. One of the ones I like, and I want to point it out, is Scotty actually makes a point of saying it's been 18 months in, re in refit for the Enterprise. Now, why does he say that? Two huge reasons. One to express the fact that the Enterprise does not look like the Enterprise we knew. Remember, this is our very first look at what is usually referred to as the movie Enterprise. Uh, the Constitution... Uh, shoot, I should actually know the exact designation. The second Constitution class. Uh, in other words, not the one that we saw in the original series with little... Uh, nacelles and stuff like that. It is also worth noting that I've been asked many times, what are some of my favorite ships? I just like to say the movie Enterprise, a.k.a. the movie version of uh, the Constitution-class cruiser, is, in my opinion, an absolutely gorgeous ship. I love it. It looks great. When I was playing Star Trek Online and I finally got mine, I was just like, oh, this is awesome. And even Pax, who isn't really a huge Star Trek fan who was playing with me, was like, man, this ship is cool, you know. Because it's just a beautiful-looking ship with that lunging forward kind of thing. I digress. So 18-month thing is a good way to show why the ship looks different inside and out. And it also helps to emphasize something that is going to be a part of Kirk's character arc, the fact that he is very out of touch with his own ship. Speaking of which, there's another nice little step. I'm, gonna, I'm skipping ahead of my notes just a little bit, but this, this, this moves very nicely here. Kirk, in one scene, he has to stop, he's, he's going this way down a corridor, stops someone and says, where's Turbolift A? And she says, back the way you came. And he looks confused for just a second, and then we have a scene between him and Decker. It's a tiny touch, but it's a great touch because, again, it emphasizes that same point. Kirk, Kirk, James Tiberius Kirk is lost on the Enterprise. That, I, I know that this sounds so mundane nowadays, but try to think of it from the perspective of the time. Even I caught on that when I was a kid watching this film for the first time. I was like, whoa. <laughs> and I turned to mom and I'm like, he didn't know where he was going. And she's like, yeah, he's, has a, the ship's been totally new. He has no idea what's going, what's what. Oh, Nice little touches like that. There's a few other ones. I won't cover the specifics. I only wrote those two down, but I wanted to mention that. I mentioned the uniforms thing. I just want to say, Sulu actually looks really good in this movie. 
This has nothing to do with homosexuality. I want to make that clear. I mean this sincerely. I think he's the only person who actually pulls off a good look uh, out of basically everyone in this film, with the sole possible exception of Bones, who has this kind of two-piece thing going on. But I just felt like commenting on it because it looks good on him. Moving on. So then, then there's the transporter accident. This is another example of the script being schizophrenic. Um, there's a lot of attempts to shift back and forth in tone over this script. Now, one thing I do like is the motion picture never actually tried to be humorous. I'm actually glad for that. I think it would have failed miserably at that task. Star Trek is so hit or miss when it comes to comedy. But it definitely tried for a more serious, dramatic effect. But at the same time, it also tried for a more warm, heartwarming effect. And it's because the script was a mess behind the scenes. I keep saying this. <laughs> this was not a deliberate merger. It was a shoving of the scripts together to say, Here, make this into a movie. And it's kind of appropriate, given the scene I'm talking about. Because if you watch the episode, you know that... Well, I'm just going to quote it right here, because I wrote it down. What we got back didn't live long, fortunately. Those abominations are basically what was made of the scripts that were that were shoved together for this movie. Such a shame. Um, but that being said, this scene, more than any other scene in this movie, in my opinion, doesn't fit. Thematically wise and serving from a writing perspective, the only purpose in this scene is to emphasize one thing. The Enterprise is not currently at full capacity. It's not fixed. It's not working properly. Okay? All right? Two things. First of all, you do not need the transporters to be functioning on a ship to beam onto a ship. Don't look at me that way. It's true. Look at the original series. Again, even going by just the original series, even going by what was existing as canon and, and well-established prior to this movie, that's pretty static. Otherwise, beaming down to planets would be kind of difficult. And of course, you'd be like, oh, maybe being beamed down to planets is different. Well, again, they beam to other ships all the time, frequently, and back from other ships. Why do they need the Enterprise's transporters to beam up? They don't. They only did it to show that the Enterprise isn't really functioning properly, which brings me to my second point. Why do they feel they need to bash this over our heads multiple times? Because they do, over and over and over, and we need more checks, and we need more things, and we need more this, and we need more that, and oh my god, and then we try to go warp, and then we have a really dull, dumb scene about the Enterprise being stuck in a wormhole as everyone's getting slowed down, and then they shoot a torpedo, which somehow breaks the wormhole, which doesn't even begin to make sense, but I'm not going to get into that. Um, yes, I know they destroyed the asteroid, but why does destroying the asteroid that gets sucked into the wormhole that was somehow in front of them, because the wormhole was actually created by the warp engines, which also doesn't make sense. You know what, I'm just going to stop. The point is, at least that scene served the same function and was, you know, more consistent with the tone because it was immediately followed by the scene where uh, Kirk confronted Decker, which is a great scene, I might add. This scene is immediately followed by Kirk going down and convincing uh, Bones, God, I couldn't even think of his name, McCoy, Dr. McCoy, of how foolish he is for not trying to beam up to the ship immediately after the previous people who were beamed up to the ship had to be beamed back and again, I'm just going to quote the, the movie here. I almost said episode. The movie here. What we got back didn't live long, fortunately. Final note. This is one of the only... I almost said it again. Episodes. This is the only one, one of the almost only works in all of Star Trek that really looks at how bad, bad can go in a transporter accident. In fact, the only other episode I recall that has this kind of visceral horror when it comes to transporting, in my opinion, is actually on Enterprise. Yeah, Enterprise, where the transporters were literally brand new technology, and they only covered it once. 
why is this scene here? It doesn't really serve the thematic purpose because it's redundant and doesn't actually flow with, with the, the pacing of the episode. It's kind of horrifying and is never touched on again. It is immediately followed by something that absolutely contradicts it. So why? No, I, I know what you're going to say. Why? It doesn't absolutely contradict it because there's a throwaway line which was actually added in post-editing. Um, that says, transporters are all fixed. Excellent. Beam everyone aboard. We certainly won't have anyone else die horribly to get on board. This is where things get weird, because there is one reason for that scene to exist. Remember, there was a Vulcan on Starfleet on, on, in San Francisco who was going to be the new science officer for the ship. And they needed to get him on the ship, and that's how they beamed him aboard. That's why they didn't just beam him directly on. That's why they didn't do what Kirk did and beam to the station and then fly over. All of these are viable alternatives. No, they just beam him right aboard so they can kill him so that Spock can take his place. That's why that scene exists, so Spock can have a station to sit at. Because actually having Spock take over the... Imagine the, the dramatic potential of having this new Vulcan guy here. I don't even remember his damn name, because it doesn't matter. Vulcan dude shows up, and he sits there, and he's trying to do his things, and he's not really succeeding all that well, because he's just doing the best he can, instead of Decker. And, you know, otherwise keep the overall structure of the movie the same, until Spock shows up, and Vulcan dude defers to Spock with reverence, with respect, with the dignity that Spock deserves because, especially amongst a Vulcan in Starfleet, which, remember, is, is still a semi-rarity at this point in, in the franchise, he would know and acknowledge just... He, he would know Spock, probably personally, if not by reputation, and he would also reverence the man in his own Vulcan way. And so then we can have this scene where t that shows how much respect Spock has, even amongst Vulcans, for all his achievements and accomplishments to help flesh out his character. But no, we got to kill him with the transporter accident to turn him into a critter from the thing. Moving on. I told you I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm going to be... I like this movie, but I'm not going to pull any punches here. Speaking of not pulling any punches, why is the Enterprise the only ship there? Now, I know, this same complaint can be said about other movies... Uh, two of them, in fact, Star Trek Four and Star Trek Seven. In both cases, the Enterprise, the Enterprise A and the Enterprise, uh, or no, I'm sorry, not the Enterprise A, the Enterprise. Uh, never mind, I'm, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. It wasn't four. Was it five? It was five. It was five. In both cases, uh, the, now granted, five is kind of admissible, but in both cases, the Enterprise A and the Enterprise B are the only ships in range of Earth to deal with problem of the week. Why? Why is there one ship functional around Earth? I, I'm just going to let that thought sit there and just move on. I'm not even going to try and dissect that one. We're just going to leave it. Now, despite the fact that I just talked stupidly about the transporter thing, I like the next transporter scene. Imagine if the previous transporter scene, again, didn't exist. Just let's eject it. Do the other thing with the Vulcan dude. Great stuff there, at least in my opinion. The scene where Bones refuses to come up, I actually liked that a lot. I liked it because it's a great way to introduce his character. And of all the characters in this movie, I think the one who really was most in character, weirdly enough, was DeForest Kelly, the gentleman who played uh, Dr. McCoy. He actually has genuine animation and... and uh, I don't know, emotion, I guess, to his performance. He actually did a really good job, I think, so definite props there. But the way he's approached and his whole, I don't know, the, the idea that Bones had actually retired from Starfleet, 
That's just a tiny tidbit. But it says so much about his character, about the idea of Bones having been so fessed up with the way things are going, or so aggravated with the way Starfleet was dealing with protocol, or maybe they had come after him for something, or maybe they had told him you can't actually practice medicine in your way anymore. Remember, this is Bones, a man who is, in his own way, traditionalist, you know, old-fashioned, but at the same way is ironically very progressive in the way he is that way. He thinks that we need to be, we need to have more technology to improve ourselves, but not to reduce ourselves. He's got that very nice uh, fine uh, line to his character, and he always had in the original series, and will continue it throughout the rest of the movies. And so I like the idea that he basically got fed up with Starfleet and said, nope, I'm out, and retired. I also love the scene where, where Kirk literally says, I need you. The sincerity of that and the, the, the begging in his voice, I love that. And I love it because it also shows something that I feel that this movie got across really, really well. The friendship between the main trio. Now, I've always felt that Star Trek works better as an ensemble piece than a main cast piece. That's actually one of my biggest complaints about Enterprise and Voyager, is that both of them tend to focus too much on main cast members rather than all the cast members. By contrast, DS9 was very much an ensemble show and did a great job of that. TNG got better at that later on. But, and, you know, the later movies also got better about that concept as well. But there is no denying the fact that Kirk, Spock and McCoy are the main characters of, of Star Trek, the original, you know, the original series, the original franchise, whatever you want to call that. And the genuine warmth and friendship and camaraderie between those three men is something that I really enjoy whenever I see it actually click. And I, to my astonishment, I really saw it click in most of this movie, with the exception of the awkward Spock scenes I've already mentioned. The three of them do have a genuine connection to each other. And in fact, I want to point out one other thing. This is, again, jumping ahead in my notes. Throughout the movie consistently, only two people challenge Kirk. In the whole thing, everyone else treats Kirk with reverence and respect. He is above reproach. Bones challenges that. But he does, and Decker's the other one. Now, they don't, both do it in totally different ways. Decker does it as the competitive, you're, you're stepping on my toes, you took my ship kind of a way. Understandable, because both of those facts are correct. Bones does it like an old friend. There's a wonderful scene where Bones leans down and says, you're pushing. Jim, you're pushing. Your people know their jobs. Let them do it, you know? I love the humanity of it. And I think that's one of the reasons I've always loved Bones as a character, and I'll be talking about him more as we go throughout this, this franchise. While Bones has never really been central stage star in, in just about any of Star Trek, I always feel like his, his absence would be a, a huge tragic loss to Star Trek because he adds something so wonderfully flawed and human to the original series and to the, and to the first six movies. And I feel that's one of the best, best possible uh, aspects of it. It's possibly also why I enjoy his scene so much in Encounter at Farpoint, but moving on. Uh, retirement, I already talked about that. Uh, another interesting thing, pay it, now again, this, this script is so weird because aspects of the script, again, it's a schizophrenic script. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. If I could describe it bluntly, I think the plot elements and the technobabble elements are usually bad, and the character elements are usually good. Good example. Kirk consistently refers to himself as Captain. Keeping in mind, he is an admiral right now. And in fact, in many of the coming movies, most of the characters, including Kirk himself, will consistently refer to him as Admiral. Excuse me for the checkoff voice. I didn't mean to do that. Admiral regardless of the fact that he is effectively acting as Captain in the next three films. 
In this movie, though, he makes it a point of referring to himself as Captain Kirk many times. And it's a tiny, subtle little nod, and I'm going to go ahead and mention it here because, again, it flows naturally. Towards He calls Decker Commander consistently throughout the whole thing to really emphasize, I'm the captain, you're the commander, this is my ship. I'll talk about that last, like I said. But I love it because right towards the end, he's listing casualties, and he mentions Captain Decker is listed as one of the casualties. It's pretty much the only time he really acknowledges that, and it's, it shows the way his character has adjusted over the course of the, this movie. But again, I'll get to that later. I'm only going to mention this for the sake of consistency. Star Trek is inconsistent. There we go. Now that I've said that. No, seriously, though. Warp, uh, going to warp in system is something that has been a plot point. I, I meant to look this up, but I think it's like two times prior to this, where it's like a super risky thing to do it. Except the other 40 or so times they do it, it's a complete non-issue. And in fact, it will never be an issue again from this point on. Going to warp in system is totally you know, normal. The only times it'll ever be an issue is when they're not really going to warp. They're doing some other new warp thing or the wave thing, you know, in TNG. Or the we're destroying subspace thing, also in TNG. So, the going to warp in system thing, I, I just want to mention it because, again, it's another example of inconsistency. Whether deliberate or not, I'll let you debate that one. and You can make up your own mind there. At least I hope you can. If I have to tell you everything, well, that's acceptable. Please join the Borg Scourge in, in Gaia of Kefka's Empire very quickly, and we will begin conquering the world promptly. Now then. I have a note here, which I've already covered, so I'm just going to mention my note because it amuses me. Total lack of tension, but good characterization. I stand by that, though. There is really good characterization in this movie. It surprised me because I forgot most of it existed. And, well, let's just say that this movie gets really boring at times. Which brings me to my next point. All of this, this whole first page of notes, is all leading up to Spock's introduction scene. Then I have about... 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 more notes, and that's it. Not even half a page. After the Spock's introduction scene... I just found myself with nothing to say. I found myself just sitting here watching the episode. Or, damn it, I keep doing it. Watching the movie... Any of you who've actually seen me do a live rumination, I did one for Empire Strikes Back, for example, knows that I'll have, like, pen and pad like this. Because I've got analysis mode on. That's what I, I like to call it, analysis mode. I'm just... And I do this constantly because I've got so many different notes to take and so many different things to talk about. But I just had nothing to say for so much of this film. But I do have one question. Why could Spock sense V'ger from Vulcan? Now, okay, Vulcan is actually pretty close to Earth in astronomical terms, but how could a Vulcan who has the barest capacity for... Uh, they do have mental powers. That's been established, even in the original series. It's also further established in further continuity. But why is he the only one who sensed V'ger? Why did Spock, of all people, sense a sentient city ship from God knows how many light years away? And no other Vulcans did, and no other telepaths of any kinds did. Because remember, there are other telepaths that exist in Starfleet at this point in time. This is even before the Betazoids have been introduced. Why was he the only one who caught it? Yeah, I can't come up with anything, I'm sorry. I mean, I can make up something, but I can't come up with anything real here. Uh, one little quick note. I don't know if you can see this, but you see this little... Hey, here, let me... See these little jotted notes I have right here? 
this was me. I stopped doing this at about the halfway point because then the, my point kind of ended. But I was jotting down how many lines Sulu, Uhura, Scotty, and Chekhov had to make a point. Like I said, there's some good characterization in this movie for Kirk, McCoy, and Spock. There is no characterization in this movie for Sulu, Uhura, Scotty, or Chekhov. Chekhov, in particular, had so few lines that you can tell some of the lines were given to him so he would have more to say. In actual fact, by the point at which I stopped keeping track of this, which is about the point they actually entered the Vedra ship, I'll just give you the totals here. Sulu had seven lines, Uhura had twelve, Chekhov had nine, and Scotty had fifteen. And most of Scotty's were right at the beginning when it was just him and Kirk. That's it. Now, in case you're like, oh, well, you're just being disingenuous, let me make my point clear. When I say a line, I'm counting... I, sir, as a line. That's how few lines they had. There is a total lack of their presence in this movie. And it kind of sucks. If I can be blunt. Because I like those actors. It's no wonder Walter Koenig uh, also had kind of a thing against Star Trek for a period in his career. Um, I'm just going to comment on this because it bugs the crap out of me. So Chekhov gets burned by an electrical thing. And he goes, ah, it hurts, it burns. And then he's there, writhing in agony. And then the nurse shows up. And then Ilya, after, like, God knows how much time has actually passed, because I have no idea how long it takes to get someone from the sick bay to the bridge, says, oh, wait, hang on. I can use my mental powers to heal his pain now, now that he's been sitting here suffering two inches from me this whole time. And he's like, oh, thank you. I, what? <laughs> this is some of the weirdest thing because it, it starts, it doesn't serve any purpose whatsoever other than to establish that Ilya can heal your, your pain. Not your wound. Doesn't heal his wound. Just, just soothes his pain. And that's it. It doesn't serve any other purpose whatsoever. You could argue, however, that this is still world building to establish the second fact we learned about Dalton's. The first fact, if you're wondering, is that they are so sexy that they're basically irresistible to most humanoid races. I'm not really a huge fan of bald people myself. Uh, well, you get the point. But, um, bald women, I guess, since I happen to be interested in women. But the second thing we learn about them is that they can reduce your pain. Again, not heal you, just reduce your pain. It would be interesting, and I would kind of credit it for more world building if that had ever come up again. I'm not actually sure if it has literally ever come up again. I'm not going to put a 100% stamp on that. But I have no recollection of it coming up again. So why does that scene exist? So there's Ilya. Yeah. Um, you might be wondering what the hell, and I've kind of already explained this, but to make this point clear, Ilya and Decker have more lines than every other cast member other than the big three combined. They are, I, I can't even call them guest stars in this movie because they are effectively some of the main cast members of this movie. It's ironic because both of them are vanished away into the V'ger Borg creation, whatever that actually happens their thing at the end, but moving along I don't have much to say about Decker, which is why I haven't talked about him yet, he basically exists as a interesting counterpoint to Kirk, he is more an aspect of Kirk's story than his own character but I think that actually works I'll talk about more why when I talk about Kirk's thread, which is, I have a note here, it's Kirk's thread and Spock's thread, I'll get to that um, but Ilya, Ilya serves even less of a point because ultimately Ilya is only there because we need a face and a voice for V'ger. That is her function when it comes to this from a creative perspective, from the perspective of the writers and the producers. We need someone to be there to talk to, to be V'ger. So that's her. 
Her connection to Decker is therefore a logical conclusion of that, because otherwise they wouldn't be able to reach her. Okay, still with it, still a sense make. That still leaves me thinking of Ilya as a plot point rather than a character, though. And that's because she is a plot point. There is no characterization for Ilya whatsoever. She's there. She's sexy. She can heal your pain. And then she's a robot. That's it. That's the full extent of it. There is no characterization for her. So if you're wondering why I'm not talking about her more, that's why. Although, uh, I... T I t I gotta point this out. If you haven't watched this movie and you're just watching my rumination uh, because you're weird and like to watch my ruminations about games and movies you've never seen before, Ilya, one of her first lines in this movie, and, and it's funny because it's so awkward. Having rewatched, I knew this existed, but rewatching it, it, it struck me how awkward it was. He's like, hello, uh, Lieutenant Decker. Or no, it's not Lieutenant Decker. Hello, Lieutenant Ilya. And she immediately says, Captain, my, note, my uh, oath of celibacy is on record. I'll go to my station now. It's just like they shove the line in there, and it's just like, what? <laughs> huh? <laughs> yes, yes, I have an oath of celibacy. That's great. Could you get to your station? Yes, I'll go to my station. Okay. Just weird for weird sakes. I don't know. So Spock actually has a nice little scene where he demonstrates something without ever saying it. You may have heard this quote. The needs of the, needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one or the few. Spock actually demonstrates this literally and functionally in this movie, and it's one of the very few examples of show-don't-tell that work really well, in my opinion. He doesn't have to say it, but he goes out, gets in his suit, flies out there knowing he's probably going to die, knowing he is risking his life horribly, and doing so willingly and without hesitation or question because he believes he will succeed at at least getting enough information to help save the crew and to resolve this dilemma. In other words, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. He actually demonstrates that through his actions. So, huge props to the movie for that. Um, I don't know if this actually had any impact on the writing and creation of Star Trek II, but we'll get to that later, uh, hopefully soon. Spock has a wonderful scene in sickbay. Wonderful scene. Let's talk about Spock's arc now, because it's not as fully fleshed out as Kirk's is in this movie, but it is still good. Spock's character arc begins here. It is a character arc that will effectively reach its terminus in Star Trek VI, even though he is still active in Star Trek past this point, in Unification, in, um, in the Abrams movies, in the comics, if you count those. He, his character arc really does go from Star Trek I to IV, and then VI, because Star Trek V is just... Let's just eject that. Um, and it all begins here because he starts this movie trying to do the, uh, I've already forgotten the name of it, the, the, the Vulcan removal, the purging of emotion, the scourging of emotion, and fails to do so, decide, decides not to do so. Keep in mind that Spock, who has always, his main character point has always been half human, half Vulcan, and how much that has defined him as a person, is someone who has always strived to be more Vulcan than human throughout the entire original series. And he's always identified as more Vulcan than anything else. And he is at the point, the cusp of when he will truly consider himself fully Vulcan, that he could effectively call himself Vulcan without having to add that little mental asterisk, half-human, at the end of it. And he declines it. He himself explains why that is so clearly, because he felt incomplete 
Is this all there is? Is this all I am? He felt that just that pure logic, going purely Vulcan, would be not actually fulfilling his own service, his own purpose, his own reality, that that would not be him. And Nimoy gives a really tremendously great performance, which is no surprise because the man's a great actor and has been for many years. He gives a wonderfully heart-rending performance as he's lying there on the sick bay and he explains just, he, he even laughs, but it's not even like, ha, ha. no, it's this quiet, sad little laugh because Spock does have emotions, remember, even ignoring his half-human side. And he has expressed them before, a muck time actually being one of my favorite examples of that. And so he just gives that loud laugh. That the mere fact that he's willing to let his guard down for that laugh says so much about how he feels at the moment. But then he does something else, which is, again, a great example of show, don't tell. He takes Kirk's hands and he says, this is something V'ger cannot understand. It's so quiet the way he does it. But it is so adamant. Kirk even Shatner even gives a good per counter performance to this. He even he 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 realizes what's happening and he puts his hand on Spock's and just reaffirms it there, because there is a bond between those two men that is past friendship, past brothers. They are in many ways nakama. I've used that term before. True comrades in arms. There is so much friendship and caring between those two people, and so Spock. Allowing Kirk to hold his hand, because remember, tactile sensation is already established as something that's a big deal for Vulcans. I just talked about this recently in Year of Hell Part 2 with Voyager. So he grips Kirk's hand, and he doesn't say it because he's still got his pride after all. But that unspoken acknowledgement of how much Kirk and the, and the friendship and connection he has with Kirk means to him, that's a powerful scene. A wonderfully powerful scene, and I love it. So then we get to the end here. This is when my notes start to taper off, because I have so little to say about the end. There's the mystery. You know, V'ger is Voyager 6. Okay, whatever. Um, I remember at the time really liking that twist when I first saw it. I was also pretty young when I first saw this uh, in the theaters, because, yeah. Um, I was pretty young, but... Um, I do still remember enjoying that twist at the time. Even watching it now... I still enjoy the presentation of it because while they certainly build it up, most of the buildup is because of that effects problem I already mentioned. If you chop the effects down and make them more, more, you know, more manageable, the overall approach and buildup to the true reveal of what V'ger actually is is actually pretty well done, all things considered. And their presentation of it is like, oh, okay. It's a nice thing, especially when, as someone who has always been a fan of the space program, I recognized Voyager immediately the second the camera panned up. I'm like, D -d 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 -d. <laughs> that's one of ours, you know? I'm pretty sure that's exactly what I said. I was like, that's one of ours! And then mom was like, shh. Um, but, you know, a good presentation of that reveal. The only catch is it's a little bit too obvious in hindsight. Maybe that's just my age speaking. But at the same time, one thing I've always found is when I go back and watch or play things from when I was younger, I have a completely different perspective that experience has given me. And usually it involves one of two things. Either I appreciate it more or I appreciate it less because I can see the true depths and complexity of it or it's more obvious and apparent to me. And this is one of the latter. The, the, the overall presentation of it is a lot more obvious in, uh, now that I'm rewatching it with analysis mode on. There's a lot of hints about what was happening there. 
one thing I really, really like, though, is Kirk... It, there's a great scene where Kirk basically shows in a nutshell why he is the captain. Why people still refer to him as the captain in Star Trek, even though, you know, people... The, the argument of which is the best captain will, will rage for, for decades to come, I'm sure. Most people who are at least Trek fans will still acknowledge that Kirk was the captain. That Picard may be a better character or a better captain, or Sisko may be a better character or captain, but Kirk was the captain, if you understand the distinction here. I mention this specifically here because this scene shows a great reason why that is. There's Kirk. There's V'ger. In a giant, massive doom ship, which I'll talk about in a moment, which is literally devastating the planet without any resistance, and he cannot stop it in any way, shape, or form. So Kirk plays chicken with it. That is really Kirk in a nutshell. He's not that smart. He's not that strong. But he has a great skill in using what he has. And he also trusts and knows the people around him and how to, again, be very skilled in utilizing those skills around him. Which is why he's the captain. Because a captain doesn't necessarily do that much themselves. They tell other people how to do things in just such a way so that things work out really, really well. You see why I'm saying this? So his ability to, to take the information at hand, take the people that are at his disposal and say, nope, we're doing this. I just love that scene. And it's, and it's a great scene. Moving on. Um, so, <laughs> the <laughs> I have so few notes left here. I'm just going to jump through them at the end here. Uh, first of all, the big twist, right? This twist is much more hilarious in hindsight. If you have not watched this this movie lately, uh, and you and you like it, I, I urge you to rewatch it and remember the movie Inception. Why? Well, there's this big sound effect that plays when they're around V'ger to emphasize, you know, V'ger itself. It doesn't actually sound exactly like the Inception noise, but it's actually really similar. And it plays each point a major plot twist has jumped. It's like, oh my god, we are the creators. It's the Voyager 6. It made it really funny to rewatch uh, for this rumination. Also, it's called Voyager, and they just keep calling it Voyager. Speaking of someone who has been watching Voyager recently, as in yesterday, and doing videos on that for the last couple of years, it's hard not to get amused at that, too. The idea that Voyager was was, was caught into a black hole and then turned into this. <laughs> I'm just thinking, where's where's Harry and all that? I already mentioned my thoughts on what happened with V'ger, and I already mentioned the Captain Decker thing, which means I'm officially uh, almost out of notes. There's one last note I want to mention here, real real quick. Anybody who plays Star Trek Online uh, may watch this movie or rewatch this movie and go, wait a minute, just like I did. The moment V'ger, the actual ship, showed up, the actual ship, not the cloud, I was just like, hang on a second, because it's the freaking Borg command ship in Star Trek Online, the ones that we see, the Unimatrix ships that we see during the Borg invasion events. That is done deliberately, for anybody who's curious, uh, obviously on STO's side of things, not... Star Trek motion pictures thing, but the people who did the art design have always uh, held cl clear to the belief that V'ger did actually interact with the Borg, and therefore they actually made the Unimatrix command ship look like v a Borg version of the V'ger ship specifically for that purpose. I just thought that was kind of cool and worthy of mention. So I've already kind of talked about Spock's threat in the beginning of it, and I've kind of let that taper off because it's going to be continuing throughout the rest of this this franchise at least up to the movie 6. But like I said, Spock started off total logic 
and then just kind of evolved, it, it, it grew to accept more of him himself and will continue to grow throughout the course of the movies. But let's talk about Kirk's thread. The story of Kirk is, in my opinion, one of the strongest elements of this movie's or this movie, excuse me. It's a thread that, again, runs through the first four movies and the sixth one, and arguably the seventh as well, although much poorly, more poorly handled in the seventh. So his thread, you could say it's about captaining the Enterprise, and that is very true. He wants his ship. It is actually called an obsession in this movie that he is obsessed with getting the Enterprise back, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. But I don't think that really cuts to, heart, to the heart of the matter. Kirk is someone who got back from his five-year mission. Keep in mind, Kirk was one of the youngest people ever given the captaincy. This is already established in the original series. He was an ambitious, skilled, hungry guy. And I don't mean like power-hungry, because that's, that's, I almost said that, but it's not really true. He's just very ambitious, but his ambition terminates at the captain's chair, because that is his ambition. Why? Well, ignoring the fact that he is the captain and very good at it, that is where he is at home. That is his home. Because while he's on that bridge, he can make a difference. When he, was brought, when he came home after his five-year mission, they promoted him like that. And of course they did. Kirk, of course he would be promoted immediately. I'm amazed they didn't try to do the same thing with Picard after a seven-year mission of incredible competency, you know? But no, Kirk was promoted the second he got home, shoved into the Admiralty thing, shoved behind a desk, and put in charge of Star... Effectively, one of the head people in Starfleet Command, from what we understand. We don't. We never get the full extent of his uh, duties. Most of that's only really covered in Star Trek II, moving on. So, why is that unsatisfactory towards Kirk? Two thoughts on the matter. One, he wasn't doing enough good in that position. I don't think that's actually the case. An admiral actually wields a fairly large amount of power, especially in Starfleet. We see this throughout the course of the series and the movies. So he had plenty of reach and capacity to do long-term changes to really improve Starfleet. And if I could be so blunt as to speculate, because that's what I tend to do, it is my opinion that one of the reasons why Starfleet became better, I'm just going to put it that way, was because Kirk spent so many years in the admiral's chair. So I don't think that's really the reason. I don't think he was incapable of doing good, of, of making a difference there. I think the reason is because he couldn't see it. He couldn't do it. If I can explain the difference for a moment. Emperor Palpatine, let, let's assume for a moment that Emperor Palpatine and Darth Vader are good people. I know, just bear with me, okay? Now, Emperor Palpatine, from his position, can affect the galaxy. He can change worlds, sectors, regions... He can appoint this and make these changes and overhaul the military. And it's worth noting that in Star Wars, Palpatine actually did push forward a lot of things that did actually improve the galaxy on a large scale. He also did some really horrible things, but whatever. I've already talked about that. No reason to rehash, rehash that territory. But the point is, if he was a good man, regardless of the Force, if he was just a good man, he would have the power to really make everything better, or at the very least, to help, to help on a huge scale, right? But he'd never see it. He would always have to content himself with the knowledge and understanding of what he's doing. Whereas Vader, Vader would go out and do it. Vader would go out and be on the ship, looking down at the world, visiting the planet, visiting the dignitaries, fighting the bad guys in person, on his vessels. Vader's the front man, right? 
he's out there actually doing it. He's the captain. Palpatine's the admiral. You see how this works out? And so it's always been my opinion that Kirk... I don't want to say he was dissatisfied with Admiralty, because that undersells it. He hated his Admiralty. He loathed being stuck behind that desk. Because while he might know he's making a difference, or he might know he's changing things or helping people, he isn't feeling it. And speaking personally, I know tremendously the difference between knowing something intellectually and feeling it down here. And feeling it can be very important. And so Kirk wanted to be out there doing, feeling, seeing, being in his element. He wanted it so badly that he was willing to shove it down the head of uh, the, the CNC, uh, Admiral Nabuda. They, they give her name in this, in this thing, but the, the, the chief admiral, who is, who is uh, in the books stated to actually be the CNC at this point in time, commander-in-chief, if you're wondering, shoved it down her throat, said, no, you're giving me this ship back, and shoved Decker out of the way. Even though he actually he, he apologizes to Decker, and Decker says, "I don't believe you. You you say that, but I disagree. I think Kirk did feel bad about shoving Decker out of the way because, of all people who would understand what it feels like to lose your ship and lose the captain's chair, I think Kirk would be one of those people. And Kirk is a flawed man. Let's make that clear, but he's still a good man. He is someone who probably did actually feel bad about taking the chair from Decker, but he needed it. He needed it." Remember how he says that to Bones? Remember how he says that to Spock? The one thing he never says that he needs is the one thing he needs the most. But the irony of it is it's not just the ship. Forgive me for bringing Pirates of the Caribbean into this, but it's just a ship, mate. From, from, uh, from Sparrow, when we were talking about the Pearl. A ship is nothing without its crew. That's what Kirk really needed. He needed his crew back. He needed his ship and his crew, his people, the people he could trust and rely on, and the ship that had carried him to safety so many different times. Kirk needed his home back. He needed it so badly, he was willing to potentially damage his career and put the ship in risk and jeopardy to do it, because he is a flawed man. He even admits this several times in this episode. I mentioned Decker earlier. Decker is so much a wonderful way to shine a light on this because Decker points out when he makes mistakes. Decker points out when he is incorrect. But at the same time, he serves as a bit of a, a foil in his own way. But at the same time, a, a counterbalance to Kirk. Because while Decker is correct in many of his actions, he is also incorrect in many of his decisions. Decker may know the ship now better than Kirk does, but Kirk knows the captain's chair better than Decker does. And so Kirk makes some of the hard decisions and does so correctly. But Decker is there to counterbalance him when Kirk makes the wrong decisions with regards to his ship. And it's a wonderful dynamic between the two to help, again, shine a light on Kirk's personality and his character development and growth, which will be really hammered in in the next movie. That's all I've got, guys. I have no idea how long this is. I, <laughs> Whenever I talk about movies, I swear... Oh my goodness. Oh my god, it's already five. Ha! I have spent all day working on this. I uh, hope you guys have enjoyed this. I hope you will enjoy the next several movies as we go through here. I really do. I'm actually super nervous about this. If you didn't, please feel, please feel free to tell me how much you hate me. I'll see you next time, guys.